Hello and welcome to the Chicana Code Switchers podcast. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicana scholar practitioners in higher education. Each episode, we discuss insights, tips, and resources for students and practitioners in higher education with a focus on social justice and platicas. With that being said, let's start this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chicana Code Switchers. I am your host, Patricia. And Ariana. And today uh, we're going to talk about how we are together in Cambridge um, physically. I flew yesterday here and I am sleep deprived. <laughs> um, and we're going to record live this podcast where everyone is actually present, which is as we all know, um, challenging <laughs> to do when we're all in different time zones. And uh, we're getting ready to do our live podcast recording tomorrow for the AOCC conference. And uh, we're going to meet new co cool people. Yes. And uh, I guess my check-in for this week is that I'm really excited that you're here. I We've been talking about you visiting for a while now. I mean, since I moved here <laughs> almost two years ago. And it's really cool to show you around uh, my area. I forget that you're not here. So I'm just <laughs> walking around doing my things like per usual. And I'm like, oh, yeah, right. Sightseeing. Yeah, this is Somerville. <laughs> um, and then yesterday we had the fortunate opportunity to meet Jamie Cam Cambron. Remember, she, men she mentioned to make sure you mentioned to say the M because, you know, it's a bad word. <laughs> And she was amazing. We spent, we had lunch, oh, you weren't there. We had lunch um, with Undocu Allies, and then uh, in the afternoon, I got to open for her and then somewhat facilitate a conversation, which was um, a first for me. And um, yeah, so we hope to have her uh, in a future episode because she has a lot to say. But today, we are very lucky to have two amazing women that I've lucky to know and call friends and who are also here at Harvard doing amazing stuff. Um, we have Donna and Erica. They use pronouns she, her, hers or, you know, plural, you know, in plural. Um, and then uh, just a little bit about themselves. Uh, Donna is a third year law student at Harvard Law School. She graduated from Stanford University in 2015, where she completed an honors thesis analyzing community involvement in the budget planning process with the San Francisco Unified School District. She then joined the Boston Consulting Group, working on a mix of finance and pro bono education cases. She quickly left the firm and joined the ACLU of Southern California, San Bernardino, where she assisted in education equity cases throughout Los Angeles and the Inland Empire. Her projects include analyzing racial discrimination and disciplinary procedures, investigating inequitable treatment of students based on race and gender in charter schools, and researching alternative education programs. At Harvard, Donna is a member of the Harvard Legal Aid Bureau, heading the Special Im Immigrant juvenile, juvenile Status Practice Area. She also serves as the Executive Director of the Harvard Latinx Law Review. And Erica is a second-year law student at Harvard Law School. Um, she graduated from John Hopkins in 2016, where she studied uh, the effect of socioeconomics on the overall health and of marginalized populations, including cross-generational changes on the genetic level. 
But the most significant education she received during those years was from the city of Baltimore, uh, including being present to witness and support the city's response to Freddie Gray's um, murder by the police. She then uh, moved back uh, to Seattle and worked to coordinate the King County Bar Association's Neighborhood Legal Clinics, a program which provides free civil legal aid to cover 8,000 King County residents at over 40 locations annually. At Harvard, um, Erica is a member of a, of a student-run Harvard Legal Aid Bureau, uh, specializing in representing low-income clients for divorce and child custody proceedings. Erica is also on the board of the Central American Student Association at Harvard, the Harvard Immigration Project, and the Project No One Leaves, which assists with anti-eviction and anti-gentrification work. Erica worked last summer uh, with the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund, MELDEF, in San Antonio and is working this upcoming summer at the Bronx Defenders in New York. Erica's parents were both uh, first-generation U.S. citizens and college students. Her mother immigrated here from Nicaragua after surviving a massive earthquake, and her father's family immigrated here from Eastern Europe after surviving the Holocaust. Uh, today, Erica is the mo is most interested in breaking down cages, the cages holding uh, black communities in Rikers Island, the cages holding immigrant communities in El Paso, uh, the cages holding Muslim uh, communities in Guantanamo Bay, and all the other cages in between. Wow. Amazing. I I just had to take a breather when you were talking about the last portion of her bio. It's just like... There's just so like that's like ever present for me right now. Just trying like the frustration about what to do with what's happening at the border and like what's happening, you know, previously in American history, you know, and how that's that continues to be present. And like it's frustrating that history is continuing to repeat itself and like nothing has changed. But do you want to speak on that a little bit more, Erica? Your your feelings or thoughts on that? Um. Yeah, I think that what what is really um, overwhelming sometimes to think about is the fact that we are obviously really horrified by what's happening at the border, but that this is a very American phenomena mm -hmm. that's been happening since colonization. Um, we've always separated children from their parents. Mm -hmm. um, we did that with indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. We did that with enslaved people. Um, we do that with mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. um, and so it is really, you know, as heartbreaking as it is to look at what's happening right now, it's, it's even more overwhelming to think that, you know, people sometimes react like this is new. And mm -hmm. in reality, we've just become very desensitized to it. And it's become, so just like a part of our, our the background noise in our lives that we don't even really think about it. Just yesterday I was at um, Framingham Prison actually and I was thinking about, you know, why is this not a concentration camp? We talk about detention centers being con concentration camps, but um, mm -hmm. we have things that look very similar to detention centers mm -hmm. all over the place, mm -hmm. um, all, you know, detaining millions of people. So, yeah, <laughs> I think these, these are all very connected, not just in the U.S., but also abroad, because 
Uh, I'm also really interested in looking at how um, something, I was in Palestine last year and Omar Bagudi, who founded the BDS movement, Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Against Israel, um, he's a Palestinian activist and he talks about how the systems which oppress us, these like prison management systems, surveillance systems, they are very interna internationally connected. Um, they do that very, very well. But we as people who are responding oftentimes don't connect on that international level as well. Um, you know, the security systems that work in occupied Palestine are the same security systems that work on the U.S. border. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're the same systems that work in our prisons and, you know, in other countries all over as well. So we have to be always thinking about and strategizing with each other across different borders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess, um, thank you for sharing that, Erica. I think that's definitely a different perspective than we're used to hearing. Um, different in meaning more more insight into the whole situation about how complex it really is. Because oftentimes when I go to events to talk about immigration, to talk about what to do or how we can get involved, it's very surface level. And I feel like it's always evading the elephant in the room. It's always like talking about it in a way that, oh, we're helpless and we have to have empathy and that and it's very frustrating because as an immigrant myself it's like that's not enough like there's an election coming up why aren't we talking about voting why aren't we talking about registering to vote and like becoming familiar with like your election and, and your candidates like for me it's it's like as someone who can't vote I'm like that's the first thing that comes to my mind or like as people you know different professionals in around us it's like I, I just feel like we're not doing enough. We're not speaking up enough. We're not, I just don't hear those voices. I just don't, like, they're experts in their field, but how can they implement that expertise on, on the ground? Or in general, how do you um, also spread that information to those people that are affected? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's where the big disconnect is. And also understanding, like, um, I think the system is also made so you're isolated thinking like, oh, only my community or whatever that looks like, right? Because it's only very monolithic, like only, you know, if let's say if you're Mexican, you only care about Mexican issues. Mm -hmm. If you're uh, looking at like uh, Southeast Asian communities are only thinking about those communities as opposed to looking how you're mentioning, um, Erica, like it's actually, you know, all these systems that have happened prehistoric, like historically for a long time, they've just been really well at organizing and repeating the same thing and changing how people remember mm -hmm. um, all these events. Um, they are changing the narrative. I mean, I mean, one of my classes that I took um, about Southeast Asian, like refugees and how the resettlement process in both uh, New York um, and Fresno County, um, in California, where um, a lot of Cambodians moved uh, to these locations, resettled there. Um, and we're not talking about deportations of Cambodians. Uh, we're only talking about deportations of uh, mostly centered around Mexicans, um, refugees and asylum seekers from like Central America, but not in, in conversations about these have, have been happening simultaneously together at the same time in the 60s and the 70s, you know, like all those conversations. So for both of you, like what has been like, how do you how do you start seeing this in your in your own work? Um, I mean, I think you're talking about making sure that we don't lose the memory and and 
connecting these communities. Um, it's as you were talking, I was kind of thinking about how maybe I'm a little bit more inclined to think about this because I am mixed. So I think about how, you know, my mom from Nicaragua, from Central America, I think about that background. And sometimes they see a lot of similarities um, between that and my father's background, um, being from Eastern Europe and um, having survivors of, of Holocaust on, on that side of my family. Um, and And I think that it's not so simple as to just say we need to learn each other's histories. I think oftentimes our communities are also guilty of some harm um, themselves between our, between ourselves. And oftentimes it's very strategic by people, um, by like oppressive systems to turn marginalized communities against each other. And so we can, we can, you know, think about how we've been turned against each other and that's important, but we also have to reconcile that harm and um, admit it and move forward and, you know, do reparations, that whole thing. If we want that from other people, we have to also be willing to give that between our communities. So, I mean, I think about how, um, you know, there are similarities between my dad's experience and my mom's experience, but still he had it significantly easier as a white um, family of immigrants coming into this country. And you can talk about how Jewish people were not 100% racialized as white during that time and all those things, but still I see like stark differences in how his family was able to elevate themselves versus how my mom's family struggled. Um, and. And again, it's not discounting the fact that my dad certainly also had their struggles, but there are still differences, um, including how now, you know, generations down the line, how um, when you're coming from a white background and, and now you're further apart from that immigrant experience, you tend to sort of forget a lot of the struggles that happened earlier on. Whereas if you're black or brown, you don't so easily forget because you're still experiencing them today all the time. Mm-hmm. I... I have a couple of points on sort of the different points that have been shared. I think, first off, it's a luxury to be able to engage in the depth of a lot of these issues, just because for some communities, populations, folks, families, the day-to-day emphasis is how do I get through the day and how do I survive, right? So thinking through like, hey, let's move beyond just the surface level conversation around detention at the border is something that is even a luxury to be able to discuss and have the space and the ability and time and emotional energy to discuss. Second, also on that point, I think a lot of times we place the onus on like, why aren't members of a particular community, for example, the Latinx community, why aren't we more engaged in X? Why aren't we showing up to um, the polls to vote? Why aren't we engaged in politics? And I think it's always important to understand, and to Erika's earlier point, that all of this is so ingrained in so many of the structures that are existing that even if we start to talk about all of the nuances of the issues that go on in a particular community, the power is held elsewhere. And so conversations of change sometimes feel futile and sometimes a lot of people feel hopeless because the power is held elsewhere. So Erika, to your you know earlier point and your beautiful sort of last sentence of the bio about the caging, It's just so 
Um, it's not just historical, but it has been so ingrained now in, for example, just our economic structure, right? A lot of these educations are private. A lot of these cages are privatized. Mm-hmm. They're part of an economic structure. There's now special interest in lobbying groups to keep these systems in place and keep them going. And so it's sort of like, where do we, you know, start the shift and, and the change? And it's a hard question. But I just want to acknowledge that even conversations around how we make that shift, it's a privileged space to, to be in. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you both for, for sharing those points. Like, I completely agree. And, and I think it's a part of, of just being here in this space and having this conversation. You or know, just in general, like um, what kind of intervention strategies some of us were able to um, like receive and be politicized Mm -hmm. you know like that was something that you know I struggled with like early on like where I was like why aren't people like you know like that conversation it could be easily like damn it you know like our gente are just not you know there or whatever but then I also I'm like when you're so um caught up surviving or just like generations of trying to survive it just becomes the norm and just in general, like when when we're talking about generations within my family, the way that there are like their mentality and their thinking is was on that like you know you know their their perception of their own reality was that way. Uh, we have the ability to look at it differently because we've had time to reflect, privilege hmm. to think, um, being pushed and challenged to do that, mm-hmm. and, and given the tools to, to to get to that you know thought process and it's also uh, kind of difficult to do that um, when just in general like you are also being you know like told like this narrative of like no you're this you're this and you're internalizing like just in general like just having conversations with my own family about like what do what does the profession what does the you know the next step what does that look like in in my reality is very different from theirs so um, within even my, within family units, you can see that, you know, like there's there's just so different. And then they're like, why are you like this? <laughs> you know, like, why are you constantly trying to fight the world? And it's just like, well, I mean, and yeah. then even within my own family, they're like, oh, everyone must be as, like when I'm talking about everyone. I mean, like um, like in spaces in higher ed, they, they're like, oh, your whole family is like super involved in like social justice and like all these like big conversations. I'm like, no, I'm the only one. So even within our own family unit, you know, like but it's, it takes some time to reflect and think that way and like how do you engage in communities where I've met students that they're like well my family have a particular experience with governments with political involvement with all these things and that's how they're framing it when they come into the U.S. they're they may not have the large scope and knowledge of like how the U.S. system works systems work and so when they're thinking about like having to go get like simple things like a driver's license or like scared, you know, like or this perception of voting is fraud and, you know, like it doesn't count. Well, because it hasn't counted for a long time. And now we are like, well, I can see how you think this way or why you would come to that conclusion. Yeah. Even um, even recently, just like a side note um, <laughs> <laughs> to your point, um, I had I texted my sister and I'm like, hey, have you registered to vote? And she's like, oh, I haven't. And I'm like, can you register my brother? Because <laughs> I don't know how that process mm-hmm. looks like. I'm, you know, I don't have that privilege. And so, but it was about, yes, I don't know what it looks like or what it's like, but I can remind you 
And I told her, my brother just turned 18 last month. And I'm like, make sure he's registered. I don't know what that, you know, what that looks like. But, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I'll take care of it, which was very helpful. And that was like something I, I posted recently on social media about like four years ago, we ended up in the situation that we're in with this current president. But four years later, our Latinos or like our families, our siblings who are U.S. citizens are now at, at an age where they, they can vote. And I feel like that's definitely going to have an impact on what on the turnout. But we just need to take it like take ownership of that and remind ourselves. But anyways, I don't know if you want to add anything else. I did want to add one thing is that um, voting is definitely important. Um, and but for me, one of the big things that I find myself wanting to scream after these panels that people are like, oh, you know, we're all so in support of changing things. Things are bad, all this sort of stuff, very academic-y. And I always kind of want to scream, okay, now everybody take out your credit cards and mm-hmm. donate, like, right now. Mm-hmm. Especially people who have that privilege. Because a lot of people, especially institutions like Harvard, mm-hmm. I was at Rebellious Lawyering Conference the other week at Yale. Um, like, I know y'all have the mm-hmm. funds where you can spare fifty, hundred dollars mm-hmm. right now because you drop that much on a pair of like shoes yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I there are people who don't have that funds. So we I think we have to be honest with ourselves. A lot of people at these institutions do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was like, it's nice to talk, but you know, go vote and also donate. You know, we talk about mass incarceration right now in this moment. I'm thinking in the rooms where I'm with like a hundred classmates from Harvard, we could free, you know, at least five people if we donate to their bail funds at this moment, mm-hmm. and that's you know, we could do that right now. Um, and I also think um, something that uh, that that you were saying, um, Patricia, is that. Um, you know, trying not to be too hard sometimes on our on our parents who mm-hmm. may not necessarily have the luxury of having this this level of education where now we can go back in history a hundred you know two hundred years and we can you know and listen from scholars from all over the world all the time um, or even gather together you yeah. know like you know we're just mating and then we're like we can have this conversation and connect in some exactly. way because of you know connections right um, yeah our families don't have mm-hmm. the yeah ability i don't i don't have seven kids i gotta be taking care of right now i don't have <laughs> yeah. you know four jobs that i'm that i'm going back and forth between i'm not working a night shift you know i there is a lot of luxury that we get to have these conversations be in these spaces like you were saying donna and i was thinking about an article that i've read by prisca who's from latina rebels mm-hmm. um that i really loved it's i'm not better than me mommy and it's mm-hmm. um i really resonated with it because i was a time in my life that i read it when i was just constantly yelling at my mom like you don't understand you're so like you're like a sheep going to the <laughs> the slaughter i was like <laughs> I, I was like gotta wake up and 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 i and then my mom just kept being like you know you read about these things I lived these things you know how dare you keep lecturing me about what is radical or not I did that you know and my mom they did not have a hard Harvard education but she's a very smart woman and there's a lot to be said for experiential knowledge over just this like very academic knowledge that a lot of us have um and and I have learned a lot from my mom. Actually, it's so funny. A lot of times she'll do the same thing that um, you were saying where it's like, who taught you this? And I'm like, mom, you did. <laughs> and she's like, no, I didn't. And I'm like, yes, you did. I swear you did. <laughs> and I have to go back and, and be like, you always tell me to treat people like this way or that way. That, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm just extending that 
as I continue my education, I'm applying those lessons, and this this is my, my, how my politics ended up. You talk, I think about you all the time when I'm at school, mm-hmm. and then I come home and you disagree with me, and I'm like, <laughs> but you taught me this. Um, and so I think that I have grown a lot from my initial just like pure rebelliousness, and now trying to be a lot more humble when I come back to my mom and trying to to learn from her and for us to learn together. I think it's been very powerful. Yeah. So since everyone's talking about their moms, we're going to talk about my mom. <laughs> no, I mean, I had, like, similar um, sentiments towards, towards my mom, at least when I was going through college and I was engaging with a lot of these issues on a much deeper level for the first time. And I would come home and I would hear my mother say something or she would be watching something on the news or repeating something from the news. And I would be like, no, mom, like, it's, it's this or that's not correct because of this, you know, just this sort of, like aura that I had that I knew so much Um, and what was always funny to me was I would sort of have these debates with my mom with this level of like fierceness and rigor my mom would be like where did you learn to be so disrespectful is how she would phrase it and I'd be like mom I just I learned to be so strong and fierce and powerful from you like that's I watched my mother be you know, she was. She came over when she was like 15. She was undocumented, and we sort of saw the ways that the world here tried to take power from her. And I grew up watching her try to take that power back yeah. in the small ways that she could, but she always tried. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it was like she wasn't treated the way she should have been in a restaurant or like anything, I saw her fight back. I was like, "Mom, I have this like attitude now because I got it from you." Yeah. Um, and like I thank her all the time for for that. Um, and then second point is, you know, I think a lot of the beliefs that my mom and my family has is sort of this belief of like, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you're sort of responsible for yourself. And this is the this is the route you take to take care of yourself. And I think for her, like the dream that she had for me was always like, you know, I want you to have this beautiful suburban life that I, I couldn't have, but I want you to have it. Mm-hmm. And interesting enough, so my name is Donna. She got it from, I don't know if anyone has watched the movie La Bamba, Richie Valens, his girlfriend was this, like, white, suburban, you know, 50s woman. And my mom named me after her. <laughs> so since birth, my mom really wanted me to have this life. And we can talk about the, the problems that come with that. But, you know, she wanted me to have this life. And so I think a lot of the lessons and frustrations that she has with my politics now is that she thinks that I'm putting myself at risk or that I'm not going to be able to survive or thrive in the way that she would Mm. she would have wanted me Mm. to and so it's always it's out of love and it's out of this fear that like I'm not going to be okay and this is the route I have to take so that I can be okay in this country looking and speaking the way that I am. I have a question for you, actually, Donna. I don't know if you, not to get too much into whether or not you want to have kids or not, but do you ever think about what'll happen when your kids maybe come to you one day and they have an attitude and they're so rebellious and they're like, you just don't understand. Like, you're so ignorant and wrong and conservative and like <laughs> when they start pushing you. Or the opposite. You know, it could be like, you're too political. You're like, you know, like... Why, would, why should we care? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, so I've actually thought about the point on, like, having kids. I don't I don't think that I want to have kids, and that's, like, a... Separate okay, conversation. Yes. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Three of us, actually. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's another conversation. But, I mean, I think... So, I have a sister. She's just turned 18, mm. and she also has the that fierceness. And she'll... I mean, she's younger, so... 
and she's just starting college. So she pushes back on some of my mm. political beliefs. Like, I, I do think she thinks I'm, like, very left. And I think she's going to get to being a very progressive person. But it's sort of like a journey to get there. Um, or not, I don't know. But she, um, but, like, I I don't know what it is. I love that about her. Mm. When I see it, it, like, I get this feeling of, like, this was the trend in our family. This got passed down by the woman in our family. Mm. And so when I see it, I love it. I love it. So I would imagine, I don't know, what do I know about kids, right? But I would hope that if I ever had a child and if I ever had a daughter, someone who identified as a daughter in particular, I would hope that she was fierce mm-hmm. and strong. And I would imagine that it would be frustrating, but I know deep down I'd be like, yes, like, <laughs> success. Now you have it on record. Yes. <laughs> now she can play that back. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And then I also wanted to make a point, like, I think one of the humbling, you know, comments I received was like, when, when I was talking to a therapist about like, what it meant to be an activist and what it meant to be, you know, engaged in social justice and whatnot. And uh, she stopped me and she was like, hold on, you're also projecting this idea of what is, you know, social, social justice. Their social justice may just look different than yours. Yeah. And so that's what I think about constantly when, I, when I'm reminded of, um, like, my parents and, like, their, their way of changing so many different things. And the, the reason why, like, I, I have this constant, like, thinking to have to pause and just say, like, oh, let me learn more about my family's you know, how they walk their life and seeing even within their generation previous to their, like they made a ton of changes for me to even be able to be this way. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the part where now I have to like remind them like, well, now I let me like, well, this was the point, right? To immigrate Mm. was to have this opportunity to do this. Now you're a little uncomfortable because it looks so different Mm. and you're kind of afraid that we won't have that connection because Mm -hmm. of, you know, this constant idea of, the Americanization process and this huge disconnect, which, you know, happened in my teens where I had like no connection to them. And I was like, I hate being brown. I hate being Mexican. I hate being, you know, like I hate you, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's what happens during that time. And, and I think because of that, I got politicized earlier on, I was able to see them with more care and more understanding and also this conditional, unconditional love that maybe they kind of provide or, you know, like their love can be sometimes conditional to be quite honest, you know? And so that's where you kind of tell them like, well, I had to reparent myself in the process because of whatever you were dealing with and and all this Mm -hmm. stuff. But it doesn't mean that I can't forgive you and bring a space now as an adult to have like could we imagine, because I actually asked my parents, like, what would you have done if you had these same resources and opportunities mm-hmm. that I had coming up? Like, if you were your own parent. That's a great question. And my dad was like, because uh, I told him, I was like, would you make different decisions? And my dad kind of thought about it. He's like, no, I think I would have done the same. But then I was like, wait, don't think about your own, like, you having your own father right. and redoing the same. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about you having yourself. Mm-hmm as a father and what decisions would you have made he's like actually i would have gone to college i would have done and i was like wow it seems like you would have done the same decisions i made (laughs) so that was a really great conversation actually so i very recently asked a similar question to my mother because i think like now as someone being in my late 20s as like part of the stream that she had for me was that I would get married, right? I would get married to a cisgender man and that we would have kids and live in this whatever house in the suburbs. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm not 
on that path and I don't intend to be on that path ever. Um, and you know, I, she, it's just so frustrating to her. And she's like, but look, you're in this environment at Harvard and there's all these people that are going to be so successful. And like, this is the time for you to find someone, you know, and like, <laughs> and you know, I finally, for once I asked my mom, I was like, mom, if you were in my position, what, what would you do? And you know what she said? She goes, oh. I would never, ever get married, and I don't think I would have wanted kids. And I was like, Mom, (laughs) why are you telling me to do these things then? But it was like the first time, and I think since then, she sort of hasn't sort of given me the hard time about being on this family path, but it was like... It's interesting how they're like their own little thoughts, you know, growing (laughs) up end up passing to their children. You know, like these different visions or these different, like, you know, probably ideas of what they could have done we end up carrying it out and then they're they're still kind of like scared you know like somehow they're still like what like how did this happen and um and it's just like I think it's it's a part of like having conversations with different generations and telling them like hey we just need to understand each other because I think you would have gotten to the same conclusion the same path the same decisions if you had what I experienced so and then I asked my mom too I was like what what about you you had a choice and she I don't think she had an opportunity to think about her having so many choices. And so that was a little bit like a hard kind of like mental exercise for her. And I'm like, well, that's the part like within our mujeres in our own family, we just didn't have that many choices either. Like it's so, it was so much easier for my dad to vision, but it was so much harder for her to even see herself outside of being a mother and a wife. Mm-hmm. And so those are the things that I'm like, um, when it comes to a lot of the women in our in our families and the men in our families, like it's it's a very challenging for them to think of this new world mm-hmm. of seeing you know much more marginalized folks in our own family like thrive and succeed and be you know the bosses in our in like um, the one in charge of like our own destiny mm-hmm. uh, because imagine and that's the thing I always think I'm like if we didn't have all these oppressive systems that we had the uh, autonomy to make a lot of choices a lot of us would make about the same ones you know and thinking about our own oppressors as well right yeah um definitely it makes me think uh, like hearing your stories about mm-hmm. your how you spoke about your families and your and your parents your moms in particular makes me think of my own um mom and and just like how loving and strong and hardworking she is and everything she did for me to be here like without her intending for that to happen you know I think that we're like um we carry those qualities with us and um I don't know it just makes me reflect at at the fact that I couldn't be here without her and I um had an interview two days ago I was telling Patricia that that as you know an undocumented DACA recipient with everything that's going on and like the questions always posed about like what I'm afraid to ask you this question but what do you think is going to happen if DACA is rescinded and I'm like and I think of my parents Mm -hmm. and I I told this interviewer um I told her I think of my parents I'm like they were here Mm -hmm. at age 23 and 19 maybe 20 and <laughs> and they didn't know the language they didn't have an education past high school in Mexico and um 
they had all this responsibility and they were in a new place not knowing you know where you know how things worked in the american society maybe they didn't they didn't even drive i don't know um it makes me think about all of the barriers that our parents overcame right and and not knowing all these things and how they were able to make it and how they were able to have us mm. right and bring us or at least for me they brought me when i was four and they were able to not only survive but thrive because like now we're like the the beneficiaries of those sacrifices you know a, a lot of what you're saying reminds me of um I don't know, like Audre Lorde's talk about how self-preservation is a form of resistance and mm-hmm. the phrase that's been said a lot, like, me existir es resistir, mm-hmm. and, like, how mm-hmm. it's just surviving and, you know, making it so the next generation has more tools and more mm-hmm. more ability to sort of do what they want. That itself is a form of resistance. You don't mm-hmm. have to go to places like mm-hmm. Harvard or, you know, do something mm-hmm. fancy on your resume or whatever oftentimes like the bigger act of resistance is just you know doing what you need to do to survive to make a better life for the people who will come next mm-hmm. um and that that has led us all to where we are right now and we would not we would not be here without that so that is an equally if not more important form of form of resistance yeah, yeah. and also that like the healing that comes aftermath of that survival um, because in that in that survival mode, I think it's like he, uh, how we're going back again is like the lack of autonomy, the lack of choice, um, doing things. Um, we've done a lot of things like having to live with families and all the toxicity that sometimes comes in with like having to deal with that one parent, the absentee, you know, father that usually like that. Those are the things. But then like within our generation, it's also like how do we survive and heal at the same time? And, and I think that's even harder. Mm. Uh, when you don't have the tools or you don't understand. And so when I'm talking about, um, like, how do you have these conversations with your family dynamics of, like, doing these different changes, it's really hard when, like, you don't have a model, you have very few mentors, you you don't have a community within, for the context that I'm talking about, it's like a lot of college students don't have that much, you know, connections with mentors or people around them that are, you know, carrying out, those different kinds of resistance there's different kinds of healing um that's so radically like embraced with like kindness and strong like all these like different energies that come in and like being realistic that sometimes you know shit sucks you know like and you hate that moment but you're allowing to have those feelings in that moment as opposed to um from my experience it was like being like raised catholic it was like suppress all those feelings and just feel an abundance of forgiveness and guilt mm-hmm. of all these things and and it wasn't helpful um and so now being in in spaces where i have access to thinking about um these healing ways that are that are centered around marginalized communities and just affirming like invalidating our experiences that's so different because a lot of the therapists that I've met don't have that training, don't have that background. So we each kind of have to do this within like here, you know, <laughs> like, and then in, in reality, like we may not have the formal training, but I think we have a lot of tools to get but when we're discussing it together to visualize and, and enact on all these changes that need to happen. And and with that, I, I guess, you know, to go to the next topic, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> because I am interested in knowing how, your educational journeys led you to be here to talk about possibly femters, mentors, people in your lives that helped you 
meet your goals or helped you in some way, in some capacity that maybe your parents did not have that knowledge or they did, or I don't know if any of you want to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I've thought a lot about how was it that I was able to attend these elite institutions because all of the odds and all the stats would have said that there was no way. So it's just like I've thought like what must have been in place that like there was some degree of luck and chance that some pieces were in place. Um, and I think the f- the first big piece is just having my mother. Um as a side note, a lot of times when I applied to like schools or grad schools or programs and they ask about sort of what has influenced you or what inspires you, I always want to talk about my mom because I, I do genuinely believe that she was the one. And there's sort of this like discouragement of like, oh, it's so cheesy to mm-hmm. talk about your mom. Like, you know, think about like yeah. find some other story to tell. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say like for it really is my mom for me. Yeah. And I don't say that to be cheesy. It's the case. Um, so first, so I'm the, the eldest in my family. I have two younger siblings. And my mom, for some, I don't know why, since birth, like, she thought that I could go to Harvard. Like, she always thought that. And so she, like, and I don't know, it, it was just because maybe I was the eldest and I happened to be her daughter and I was the eldest, that she, like, put a particular emphasis and, and honestly pressure um, that I would be able to come to these elite institutions. And um, Ariana, I think it was to your earlier point, look, my my mom, she didn't know how to get me there, right? Mm-hmm. Just like, I don't know how you register for, to vote. I don't know what that process looks like, but I can push you to figure it out and meet those deadlines. <laughs> my mother was very similar. Like, she didn't know how to get me to any college, but all she could do was tell me every day and every week, mm-hmm. You bet, like, did you do your homework? How, how did you do on the tests? Did you look, did you do the research for the deadlines? You know, what's, what's a scholarship? Can you get a scholarship? How? Did you look at it? Like, just like on me all the time. Yeah. <laughs> all the time. And it was sort of this like constant pressure on me. And gra- another conversation is like the, the toll on sort of mental health that that does put on you. And that's real, yeah. but you know, my mother pushed me. And so I try to think like what else was in play. I do think that I probably had some teachers that were invested in me for some reason. I think there was probably some sort of bias, right? I do think there's racial biases, even among people of color in public schools. I went to a public school that was predominantly people of color. I don't think it was um, just chance that the brown people were invested in a little bit more than the black folks in my school. I don't mm-hmm. think that's chance. Um, so I, I, I benefited from that, and I need to acknowledge that I benefited from that. And so I think I had some teachers that pushed me to, do you know what an AP class is? Let's enroll you in an AP class. No, I'm scared to be in it. No, I think you should try it. Mm-hmm. Like all of that had to be in place. But it meant that I had, like, I had people invested in me. It wasn't a shit ton of people, but I had people that were highly invested in me. And if I didn't have that, that I don't know how I, how I was going to be here, right? I went to Stanford for undergrad. There was no way that I would have gotten there. Um, and then even from the sort of point of Stanford to now, you know, I didn't have my mom with me all the time. And your professors are 
at least for me, they weren't as invested in me, right? So I sort of benefited from the racism in my public school. I didn't benefit from it anymore when I went to Stanford, right? Now my professors weren't invested in me. And so then it was a lot more on me to figure out how do I get to grad school because I don't know how to do this. And it was me trying to seek out people. And that was hard, really, really hard. I think um, the story that comes to mind is when I was thinking about applying to Harvard Law, um, I was like, I was talking to my mom and I was like, oh, you know, I'll apply. I don't think I'm going to get in. Don't get too excited. Like, don't t- don't be telling people like <laughs> this is just between us. Like I'm applying and like, I, I don't know if it's going to work out. My mom was just like, Erica, stop. She's like, you're going to get in. Like, stop talking like that. And, and she would always just like visualize it with me. It was just like very forceful about the fact that I was going to get in. And then the day that I got in, um, I got the call at work and I was like screaming and yelling. We were ha- really happy. And then as soon as I got home from work, my mom was like, Erica, don't get a big head. <laughs> and she was like, she was like, you need to calm down. She's like, I don't want you to be thinking you're better than anybody. She's like, you didn't work, actually work that hard. She's like, you know what? Like I actually got you 95% of the way there. You just did the last 5%. And she was just like, and, and I was kind of, sour because <laughs> I was like I was like mom I want to celebrate I want to pretend like I did a lot of work I want to like you know I, I want to just enjoy this moment it was all me and my mom was just like no 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 like I don't want you to you know she's really scared I think that I'm going to develop this complex and become a, per- a different person mm-hmm. and become really detached from my community and from my family mm-hmm. um and from her so mm-hmm. um and, you know that th- the reason why I love that story is because um you know, going back to how great moms are, but also um, sort of my own experience, I had a lot of help to get to where I was. Um, I Both my parents were the first um, to be U.S. citizens and the first to um, go to go to higher education. So they sort of already knew what I needed to do. Um, and my mom has always really strongly believed that I could, um, you know, go to these elite institutions and I could do this. Um, but She's also impressed upon me many times that, like, um, I've had to work a lot less hard than she did. You know, even though she doesn't have Harvard on her resume, people might think that she didn't work as hard, but she had to work 10 times as hard mm-hmm. to get to the schools that she went to and to, to get to where she is today. And that is what led to me being able to come to Harvard. I did already start one foot away from the finish line. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I like to talk about how hard I worked. I like to think that I worked hard. But, you know, at the end of the day, there are people who had to work so much harder um, to get here. Um, And I think that that's very reflective of the Latino population here at the law school, at least. Um, A lot of the Latino population is very white, very oftentimes coming from like very elite backgrounds, um, often mixed. And I consider myself like part of the the kind of student, the kind of Latino student that Harvard Law tends to admit. Mm -hmm. I'm very much among that demographic. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's a big problem because um, when we talk about affirmative action and wanting to have more Latino representation at the law school, you know, I I think we have to inquire why that representation is so white and so wealthy Mm -hmm. um, and how do we fix that? That's something that I um, we were discussing, mm-hmm. uh, Patricia, um, about what it means to be here. Um, to your point about one being admitted, one being here, and what goes into that, like 
I was telling Patricia that for me, it's been, you made a point about how hard we had to work going to a CSU, California State University in California, and how abandoned and not welcome and at least discouraged discouraged to be there, right? And then I was telling her that I, coming here, and I wanted to get your perspective on this, coming here, I felt like I needed, I was going to have a similar experience. I think I had a little bit of trauma of like having to like... Not a little bit. (laughs) A little bit, a lot of trauma. Um, Not only having been a student there but having worked there as a woman of color in a predominantly white institution which is most of the schools in the U.S. and most of what we experience but um, I thought that being here I was going to be like that the stakes were higher not not that they're not not trying to diminish that but I felt like what Harvard uh, did provide me was support was that I felt taken care of. I feel like there's a reason why it's the number one school in the country and in the world, like for various reasons, Mm -hmm. because they take care of their students. I feel like there's a reason that there is not a high dropout rate, right? They, at least in my experience at at school, it was like they did everything they possible to make sure that I was successful. successful. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, if only mo- all of our universities, public institutions could do that, if they only could have that approach about ensuring that their students are successful because they are not, it's not only their success, but they're also representing the institution. If they only cared a little bit more about their they're students using public funds. and they're using public funds, I feel like the, the dropout rate would be different or it wouldn't be as high, the college dropout rates. But I don't know if you want to add something to that. Yeah, I think, well, I've come from two CSUs, so that's even more, I think, have made me really think about not just like the geographic location, but the CSU system as a whole in California. And so that has made me realize like, you know what, we when we are talking about, because my thesis is on graduation rates um, and accountability and looking at administrators, how they're implementing it. And it's it's just outrageous to see like all these hypocrisies and the like you're saying one thing but actually you're doing on like a whole complete other thing and a lot of people not having the vision and the capacity to see like we can all be successful we could all thrive if we're creating really great environments where everyone's thriving and everyone's being catered to and you know validated and like I I just come from this vision of like there's an abundance of a lot of things we can each do our own little granito de arena like in our own little like um, not ganas in the way that like usually movies get portrayed like oh you have to have ganas but more like de tu parte pon de tu parte like you have to you know put part of you into wanting to believe that the system is going to like do because it's a public institute that's a part that I don't understand like and also like just being first generation college student and immigrant like for me I have this like visions of like what it, it should have been and then being faced with oh it's not <laughs> and then being annoyed that I mean we had a conversation about this yesterday um that as a scholar practitioner the scholars don't see me as scholarly enough and then the practitioners are feared because I know too much. 
And so for them, they have this idea that they shouldn't be better than like I shouldn't be better than the people that are already there. And Harvard, what the conversations we had is like the idea that you should be better than I am because that's a reflection of me. I did a really good job of investing with with understanding that there's layers to it, right? Like, and that's the thing where we we're talking about, like when even with, you know, policies for undocumented students, a lot of people see California as the leading thing. And I'm like, uh, but you know, like, yes and no, you know, there's layers to it, right? But it's like the idea or the frame is there. If we were to really actually implement it, it would be like a whole other level, right? Um, so those are the like things that I've been like kind of thinking about in this past week. Yeah, I mean, I think these, these, that's why I love talking to School of Education people. You guys, you, you guys have such great insight on places like Harvard. Um, I mean, it's different for all of the schools at Harvard. All the different, yeah. demographically. Like yeah. And also, like, where you are as a person, right? Like, I'm coming in in the space with all these ideas, not necessarily because the school is like, yeah, yeah. have these ideas, you know, it's, it's, but it's different, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, and Erika, you might have a different perspective, but I can talk about the law school a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't feel super supported or even a little supported <laughs> <laughs> by the law school. And this might be a little bit of a pessimistic view, but I think mm-hmm. that when the law school is recruiting or admitting folks to attend the law school, mm-hmm. I really do think that either explicitly or implicitly, they're picking folks that they think aren't going to need as much support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're picking this very like upper class, I know all about college and grad school, my parents went to grad school, white or whitewashed population. Parents are already lawyers a lot of times. Or judges, right? Judges, or like really high up politicians in the States. Anyway, or or in other countries. (laughs) Anyway, um, so I think like there just aren't mechanisms and the law school refuses to implement mechanisms that would be supportive to students, students of color, first generation, low income, and the intersection of a lot of those identities. And I think they're just picking folks that aren't going to need it, right? Um, So I I don't know, if Erika, if you have like a different perspective on (laughs) low law school support. (laughs) Or lack of. Lack of. No, I definitely agree with a lot of what you said. And I I think what's what's really... um, the thing that I get really mad at is how these schools are. Harvard is pretty lazy in picking students who are already like you know fifth generation lawyers or whatever. A lot of times, um, yeah. And sometimes it's kind of weird because you step into a classroom and everybody already knows the material that you're supposed to learn, and I, I, and I just feel really far behind. Mm-hmm. And like I don't know, some of my friends I love them to death, but they are coming from these like they already know because their parents have been these like really high profile attorneys or whatever. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it it just makes me feel like they're so talented and like I'm struggling because I I don't know that thing yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can be kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just like a insecurity part on on me and that's that's personal. But I think it is also heightened by the fact that um, 
we're in these classes of people who have already seen it, been raised in it, done it, like did mock trial for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. And then also, um, I meant support. I forgot to mention to white people. Like, <laughs> I, was like I was like, my bad. Uh, I thought usually it's, you know, the norm, but it, it's important to insert, like, it's, it's full on huge support to them because, you know, it works for them. But like, let's say if you were to take away all the students that they like, they admit, put all these like students that have like don't have the social capital, don't have all these like other things, like they would fail probably. I'm assuming, like, you're right. Yeah, I mean, and I, I will also say that like at least for those listening that maybe are considering law school or that are in law school now. A lot of the structure of law school is not conducive to a lot of these folks from these communities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the law school does whatever first year curriculum of all these topics that are very different but are supposed to be the foundation of everyone's legal knowledge, right? You have to know contracts and torts and like property, whatever. and then even within that, right, to Edgar's point, like, people come with that knowledge already. So if you don't have that knowledge, holy shit, it is an overload of very new information and language that you've never heard before. <laughs> the first thing people start, like, citating themselves, like, talking in person. People are like, oh, yeah, see such and such opinion <laughs> as they're yeah. talking to me. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. Uh, <laughs> it's like, a, it's a whole other language that really you have to learn. It's. It's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) And then, like, you go beyond just the curriculum and the language that the law writes in. And then we also have something called the Socratic method in law school, which is I'm going to cold call some student in front of 80, 90, what have you, other students. And this professor, who's usually an old white man, is going to have this like debate with you, pose all these hypotheticals, ask you all these questions. And um, there's some body of research, I think it's Professor Guadalupe Valdez at the Stanford Graduate School of Education that talks about like what are the different um, ways of pedagogy that are conducive to different populations of folks, so Latinx students or black students or um, folks from low-income backgrounds. And the Socratic method can't be conducive to these communities. Having someone um, explain their thought process out loud, think out loud, like all that analysis, at least for me, wasn't something that my family emphasized. You know, my mom was very like, you know, you're careful when you speak to adults. Um, You don't come and interrupt me when I'm speaking with my friends and your family. You don't do that. That's disrespectful. And now this professor wants me to just have this conversation (laughs) in front of everyone, you know. And then also my mom was like, you know, you don't, don't speak unless you know the answer. Don't waste everybody's time. And that's not what law school is trying to have us do. They're having us waste everybody's time because, you know, at least, like, I don't know the answer. So if you're asking me to speak, I want to be spewing some nonsense for 10 minutes. And, like, that's not what my family raised me to do. Mm -hmm. And so this method just doesn't work for folks of different cultures that weren't brought up to do these things Mm -hmm. in the Socratic method. I want to emphasize 
how cold calls can be really cruel. Professors will sometimes, if someone clearly did not do the reading and does not know the answer, which look, I'm not judging people for not doing the reading. I, Donna and I both don't do the reading. Nope. But like, um, you know, but let's say you're 1L and you're coming to class and maybe you have a crazy night the night before with a million things going on. So you don't manage to do the reading, but you still want to come to class. And the professor asks you a question and you don't know the answer. Clearly, everyone in the room knows you don't know the answer. You will move on. Mm-hmm. He'll stay on you. He'll keep asking you questions. I have seen people cry because of the way they are just pressed and pressed. And he will stay on you for five, ten minutes. Waste everyone's time. No one's learning anything during this time. We're all just watching this person be traumatized. And guess what? They probably won't keep coming to class. Um, and, uh, you know, I've seen like, professors who do things where, like, if you don't know the answer because you didn't do the reading and that's clear, they'll move on from you and then they'll come back back to you in 15 minutes and you still didn't do the reading (laughs) you didn't do the reading in those 15 minutes (laughs) and so like but they'll just keep coming back to you just to remind everybody in the room and to remind you that you didn't come to class prepared and like these one-hour classes So this is the end of the first part of this episode. The second part will be released at a later time um, to transition into our POC business shout out. We're going to shout out um, an Etsy um, business. Um, You can find Monarch of Gold uh, through Etsy. Um, this is, uh, the Etsy shop of Yemi Cambron is an undocumented artist, um, activist and public speaker through her art and storytelling. She will invite students to critically and creatively think about art as a tool for activism, storytelling, and entrepreneurship. Her own personal life experience informed much of her work and illustrate and documented in immigrant narratives, often missing from conversations. Uh, Yami is known uh, for her uh, well-known piece called Education is a Liberation, um, is a butterfly piece. Um, on one side, the wing has a book, and the other one is the um, wing of a butterf- the monarch butterfly in the center with the, with the um, pencil. Uh, you can find Yami in, on social media um, using at ycambron. Um, we'll have the details on our um, episode caption and also uh to finish this off uh, for all of our listeners you can email us at chicanacodeswitchers at gmail.com uh send us any of your um business shout outs especially in during this time we want to support um small businesses um and then conferences um will be most likely postponed uh due to uh the coronavirus um and uh, any event shout outs or any listener letters, let us know how um, our podcasts have impacted you or things that you would like for us to cover in the future. Uh, we've have uh, several um, listeners send us an email um, talking about their experiences just listening to our uh, podcast. It's really nice to hear um, how much um, it's been helpful for you all in your own journeys. Um, and also don't, don't forget to rate us on, uh, iTunes. I'm not sure how all the other platforms work. Um, just share or downloads, um, help, um, just amplify and help us, um, be more visible and have other people, um, connect with our work. 
Uh, We do have some announcements um, later on sometime around April or May. I'm trying to focus on just immediately just finishing the semester and graduating. So uh, we do have some projects working up that'll be exciting to share. Um, And you can get all these updates um, by following us on Instagram at Chicana Code Switchers and on Twitter um, at X Code Switchers. Um, If you'd like to support and help us um, also contribute to our platform, um, you can Venmo or Cash Cash Up app us at uh, Chicana Code Switchers and or become a Patreon contributor. Uh, thank you so much for tuning into um, this week's episode. Um, please take care and also um, for, don't forget to switch the code.